We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. As always, you can email the show at, at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by former Congressman Doug Collins of Georgia. Welcome, sir. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Oh, glad to be here today. Now you you have a podcast right now, is am I correct? Like you you do this, <laughs> you do yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> I do that in a radio show, do some you know consulting. But yeah, the podcast's been fun. We started it. Um, you can get the podcast anywhere you get it. Uh, it's through Salem, but we can get it anywhere uh, you download your podcast. And I sort of try, it's it's a it's a long form. It's something I don't see right now a lot of. You know, you're doing informational shows, but what I'm thinking is I do a lot of one on ones with members of Congress, members of uh, different industries, music, others. And we do it in a very, you know, sort of long form, you know, how they got there, very laid back discussing the issue. So it's, it's, it's a little bit different than some of the things that are out there, especially coming from what people would maybe consider a political podcast. Yeah, totally. And the long form of podcasting is in such demand right now. It's a great way to have these complicated conversations. And I, I also have to ask, you are coming down off the high of a sweet victory over Alabama. That has to feel pretty good, right? Oh, yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> go, go, I have to get in a good go dogs. But yes, it was it was it was very good uh, to see that happening. And very well deserved. I told somebody the other day that uh for me, it was pretty, you know, coming full circle. My dad's a Georgia State trooper, and he used to carry the referees to the ball games at Sanford Stadium back in, in 1980 and before then. And so every once in a while, I get to uh, tag along and ride in the car and take the referees, but I get to stay on the sidelines. So the 1980 season, the fir- the last national championship season, I was uh, watching games from the sidelines. This year, we were watching games with the family in my stands. And so, you know, 41 years, is it's a good circle back. Yeah, no, absolutely. And tell us, is this is I think this is the first time on our show. Um, if you could give us just a little bit of background on your career, and I'm sure most people are familiar with your yeah. trajectory, but uh, your time in Congress, uh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'm born and raised here in, in Georgia, went to school here, uh, was in business for a while, pastored for 11 years. I have a, a undergrad degree. I have a master's of divinity from New Orleans Seminary, Baptist Seminary, uh, pastored for 11 years. Uh after I joined the Air Force, in which I'm still a chaplain, I've been a, an Air Force chaplain now for almost 20, oh, well, coming up on 20 years, uh, I deployed to Iraq in 2008, 2009. Uh, 2005, I left uh, the uh, day-to-day activities of being a pastor at church, went back to law school. So I have a law degree from uh, John Marshall, Atlanta, and started a law practice. While I was in law school, I got elected to the Georgia legislature. Um, before I left, I was the governor's floor leader for Nathan Dill. Uh, we did a lot of things with a hope scholarship down here for people familiar with that. That's our lottery funded education program and was elected to Congress in uh, the election in 2012, started in 13 uh, and spent eight years there. So I was Republican vice chair of the conference. And then also where a lot of people got probably if they knew me or know me, they got to know me during the uh, impeachment saga. I was the uh, ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee. Um, we were doing battle all the time with Jerry Nadler um, on a variety of issues, but the impeachment was the biggest uh, of that. So that's uh, that sort of catches you up to date a little bit now. And like I said, now I'm podcasting, doing a radio show, doing those kind of things. Do you I mean, this is the million dollar question. Do you miss um, when you're watching the news and you're seeing everything that's happening in, in Congress right now? Do you miss not being here in D.C.? Or, or do you feel how the, the millennials call it FOMO, the fear of missing out? Do you have any FOMO over not being in Congress? right now? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, well, uh, my last three years in, in Congress were you know pretty 
<laughs> intense coming from the election cycle uh, of 18 was being the vice chair of the conference and, and working that. And then uh, the next was the impeachment process for two years. Then I actually did run for Senate down here in Georgia in a crazy mixed up kind of mess that got down here. So uh, the last year has been good, pretty good for me just, just to sit back. But yeah, there are times I miss it. I tell you what I don't miss and, and or what I'm really concerned about. I'm concerned that the last two and a half, two plus years have really um, damaged the ability for Congress to get things done. One of the things that maybe people don't know about me is while I was in Congress, I wasn't one to just sit back. I wanted to actually get things done. And we had probably close to 20 what's known as red lines. And I'm sure you're familiar with the actual bills passed into law. And we're not talking post office namings. I mean, we did the first step act, which was president Trump's signature criminal justice piece of legislation. That was an author. I authored that along with Hakeem Jeffries. We did the music modernization act, which uh, transformed how we uh, digital uh, music and, and others is being paid to our songwriters and our artists, which had been almost a hundred years uh, had never been touched. We did stuff on uh, cloud computing and, and uh, the Cloud Act, which has now become the standard uh, on how we deal with uh, overseas databases and how law enforcement can access that. So we did a, a lot of things in a short amount of time. And so there are times I miss that. But what I'm seeing right now in Congress and I saw as I was getting out is there's less and less of a desire to do what legislators do and more of a desire, it seems to uh, just perpetuate a fight. Right, uh, right. And actually, one of the things that we have to touch on, I think, gets into this issue, which is President Biden's visit to Georgia yesterday and the speech he gave, which yeah. we now know, uh, I think perhaps the most egregious part was written by acclaimed historian John Meacham when uh, President Biden said he, he asked people, you know, whose side do you want to be on the side of Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? Do you want to be on the side of George Wallace? Um, it was really basically casting everybody in his own party who didn't agree with what he was talking about um, in terms of voting legislation as a racist. Is that one of the things that makes it most difficult um, in Congress for people to actually work on these different issues? What is this, this sort of partisanship and the, the heightened rhetoric and all of that contributing to it the most? Or are there other factors that people don't see as much? Yeah, it is. I think there's several things, you know, going back. And if, and I had not. It's interesting you should brought up you know, Meacham. I, I've respected Meacham as a writer. Uh, if he wrote that, I, I've lost a lot of respect uh, for him as a writer because, frankly, OK, let's just make the choice. Abraham Lincoln or Jeff Davis. OK, I'm with Abraham Lincoln. I'm a Republican. OK, mm -hmm. you know, this let's be who freed the slaves. OK, let's it's Republicans. You know, who were the votes that got the Civil Rights Act and everything else? over? It was Republicans. Let's 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 at least have an honest discussion of history here. And but, yeah, it is. It's it's the part that makes people not want to be a part of it because it's not any more of, you know, can you sit down and I'll go back to my own experience. I mean, and this and I've noticed this change, if, if you'll allow me, I've noticed this change from the moment the Democrats won in, in 2018. I don't put the full blame you know, on them, but their actions when they came into office in 2019 and their complete obsession with Donald Trump uh, on everything that they did, no matter right, wrong or indifferent, it was always about Donald Trump, which stemmed back from when he won in 2016, has made it very difficult, uh, you know, to be productive. I mean, think about and I'm, I'll ask you, give me something besides the uh, stimulus package uh, this past year, maybe if you want to include the transportation uh, debacle, what has Congress done? Yeah. Nothing. 
Mm-hmm. And, and it's just, and it's because our electorate and our base on either party is not allowing uh, conversations. Hakeem Jeffries and I did the First Step Act together, along with many other things. And he and I disagree probably if the sun's rising or not politically. <laughs> but we found things that needed to be worked on for the American people and was willing to take that step across and get it done. You don't see that as much anymore. I've made this statement before. I believe one of the biggest problems you have in Congress is that members are bored. Hmm. And that may sound funny to people because, I mean, if you go to any member's schedule, they're just totally packed. What I mean by being bored is there's nothing passionately driving them. They don't have an issue like, you know, and I'll use a different issue. It could be, you know, cancer. It could be tax code. It could be, for uh, for me, intellectual property or a criminal uh, justice reform. Most of the members don't have a signature issue because they're stretched so thin on the political that they don't have time to dig into individual issues. Right. And the I guess the counterpoint that's uh, hot at the moment on the left would be, well, then we need filibuster reform. Um, We need to, (laughs) you know, we we need to sort of lubricate Congress a little bit. And if we want to get things done, the best way to do that is through filibuster reform. So having served and having sought uh, a, a seat in the upper chamber, what do you think about that counterpoint? I, I think is I think that many in the Democratic Party and I and I mean this in you know, with it, you know halfway jokingly but but very true I think I'm, I'm not sure how they'd make it through a counseling session <laughs> with the flip flops that they've made on the filibuster issue and and look if they want to go about this here's the thing that that they they well, that I have seen recently among the Democrats and especially the left they're more concerned about getting their particular policy done that they don't care how they got there okay the end justifies every mean to them. And it's interesting that the Democrats have been the largest purveyor of the, of the filibuster in the last few years than, than Republicans you know, ever were. And they're short-sighted. It was Harry Reid that finally broke the barrier, if you would, to go nuclear or however you want to call it, with the judges. And he was able to do a couple of things with his judges, but Mitch McConnell was able to take that and and load up the the bench with Trump's uh, Donald Trump's appointees, which from a Republican conservative perspective was great. Um, but it was a it was a reaction to their short term gain equal long term you know loss. They're looking at the same thing here. However, I think when you start getting into regular legislation pieces, uh, Mansion, Cinema, Tester, some of the others, I think are going to, to balk on that because they realize that, you know, if the house and the Senate both flip, which is looking more and more likely this next cycle, you're going to see a lot of that being forced upon a president, uh, president Biden in his last two years, that will make it very uncomfortable going into a presidential election. So, you know, we'll see if they do it. I, I firm, I told somebody this the other day, I believe that build back better has a chance of has more of a chance to be resurrected in some form then I do believe that the filibuster change on an issue like this uh, would happen. But, you know, it's going to be interesting. But I will say this, you know, to not just simply throw the idea. I am a proponent of and I've talked about this before uh, of a filibuster change, but it's an interesting filibuster change. And it would be only only on appropriations process. There's one thing that I have traveled this country over many, many miles and listening to people. They do not understand why the. Congress of the United States cannot figure out a way to, to uh, do a, a budget in their mind or spend money or uh, keep the government running. They just don't understand it. They have to do it in their homes every month. They don't understand why Congress can't do it. Now, I fully recognize that if you took the filibuster off the 12 appropriations bills, 
that in a situation like we have today, that the Democrats would get everything that they want. I get that. But that also would then form the, the real process of, of people believing on conservative side and liberal side that elections matter and you've got to make your point. But our fiscal house is just such a wreck right now. We've got to figure out something uh, or we're going to be in real, real trouble. And a lot of people on the right would are, are sort of I agree with that completely. A lot of people on the right are sort of exhausted by this conversation about uh, fiscal conservatism um, at a time when uh, their their feel is though there's so many pressing culture issues, right? That kids are being taught neo-racism under the banner of anti-racism in public yeah. schools. And you have uh, the child abuse being inflicted on people in the name of the transgender ideology. And you can go on down the line. So yep. what do you think the Republican agenda should prioritize going forward? I, it, I think it's got it's got to prioritize and the the basically and this is going to sound trite, but it's very true. Uh, it's got to recognize the voters. Everybody can talk about elections and campaigns and everything else. But the one thing that you always have to remember in a campaign is at the end of the day, voters have a say. And a campaign, either Democrat or Republican, could be on their pet issues of, of the moment. But if it doesn't resonate with a voter, who actually is going to vote, then you're, then you could spend billions of dollars and it won't matter. And I bring up Virginia probably and New Jersey, frankly, in the last, uh, last November as an example of this, Terry McAuliffe was just completely tone deaf uh, to what was going on in the schools. And whether it be CRT, whether it be the transgender issue, whether it be a school board in Loudoun County who was covering up a, a rape, um, you know, these kind of things were, were parents we're not getting answers from their local officials and McAuliffe basically implying parents shouldn't be involved anyway. Youngkin was able to listen uh, at least, a, you know, and, and the voters proved this out. They felt like Youngkin was at least responding to what we'll call meat and potatoes issues, mm -hmm. you know, about my kids, their education, going, you know, having uh, affordable gas, you know, having a job, those kind of things. Um, I think that's what you're really going to have to focus on. Yes. We're going to, I mean, it stirs the emotions, of the social issues. And we do have to be engaged in that. I mean, abortion is another issue that's going to be a hot topic uh, in this cycle, given the fact that the Supreme Court has that uh, the case before. Them. Um, but it's also got to be as well about what we just saw today, as a matter of fact, is, is inflation is really getting to disturbing levels. So people are feeling that every day. So I think you got to answer to the what's being talked about. I what my test is is what are they how what are they talking about at the Waffle House and how do you explain what your reason is is best? <laughs> um, so you also have a military background, as you mentioned earlier, and that what we were just talking about has come under the banner category of wokeness. That's sort of how people yes. describe it. Have you seen that um, infiltrate the military? I mean, this was obviously um, on full display or in, in a center at the center of our conversation when uh, Mark Milley was testifying last summer. Um, but it's a, a worry that a lot of people have. Have you seen the military be sort of infiltrated by this noxious ideology to to the extent you're concerned about it? I, I've seen it in it. Um, I, I, at times, I think, you know, it, specific events seem to, I, I would say, highlight it more than maybe it is, you know, widespread pervasive. But, but yeah, it's been this way for a while. I've been one of the strongest proponents in, in being in Congress, being the only chaplain in the military uh, in Congress. I was at the forefront of almost all the religious liberties issues. And we found this very disturbing um, 
that outside organizations, uh, men like Mickey Weinstein and others who basically wanted to do away with religious uh, expression and liberties in the military under the guise of, of you know, the separation of, of church and state, which uh, you saw this, you know, being played out. There's a cautiousness. I mean, the militaries are a cautious uh, branch of, of our, our government, you know, and, and I say that not just specifically for Army, Air Force, Marine, Space Force, you know, Navy, others, uh, Coast Guard. Um, and it's always at times used as a social, uh, you know, mechanism. And I'm concerned more not with the lower level, you know, enlisted and, and lower level uh, officers. Uh, I'm concerned with what we're seeing at the very top with the secretary of defense, with the, with the chief uh, uh, joint chief of staff. Those are where I'm seeing the most when they're, they seem to be placating more of a political agenda than, than giving honest truth about our military status. This is an ad I'm really excited to bring to you because it addresses a problem we talk about all of the time on this program. Blinkist has the perfect content to help you be a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable version of yourself in 2022. Their goal is to empower people to grow personally and professionally by discovering content that inspires, motivates, and gives you new perspective on your lives and in the world in 2022. So how do they do that? Well, with 22 Ideas for 2022, Blinkist's content can incredibly impact your lives. So there are titles of books on Blinkist and they advertise themselves on their website as big ideas in small packages. So you can read major books by people like Scott Gottlieb, who has uncontrolled spread on Blinkist. Even Roger Scruton, How to Be a Conservative, that's on Blinkist. You can read books from prominent authors, books that are making a huge impact on our politics and on our culture. Ryan Holiday, who's been on this podcast, you can listen to Lives of the Stoics, you can read Lives of the Stoics, and it says right here on Blinkist's website with a subscription that book becomes a 13-minute read. Trey Gowdy, Doesn't Hurt to Ask, that book becomes a 15-minute read on Blinkist. They have such a huge library of really important and impactful titles. If you want to read Ilhan Omar's book, you can do that in a truncated time period and it becomes digestible. We are drowning in content right now in our world. And to be able to to condense important ideas from major books that are so impactful is an invaluable contribution. It's exactly the kind of innovation that we need in this high-tech world where, again, we are drowning in content. And to be able to consume it responsibly does require some work. And this condenses the important information from those books without losing anything. That is an aha moment, right? This is an innovation that is bringing us something important that works with the way we live our lives now. And too many people, because of the way we live our lives now, just don't have enough time to get to books, period. This makes books accessible. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Federalist to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Federalist to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Federalist. 
what did you think of the the coverage of January 6th as it played out last week? I mean, you have a particularly useful perspective on this given uh, your position, but in the the sort of one year anniversary of it as the media was remembering that day, what did you think? I was saddened. Um, it was saddened that the one the event took place to start with. It, it, I, you know, those who cross over should never have been there. Uh, but I think making it out to be, I mean, when you had the, the I think it was the vice president uh, comparing it to 9-11, comparing it to Pearl Harbor, um, again, all along knowing that those comparisons would then turn around and be used to pass a piece of legislation, uh, such as the voting rights uh, bill, the John Lewis bill and others, it, it was disturbing. So I think the the media wants to keep this uh, going many times because they just simply despise Donald Trump and they believe that this is tied directly to him. Um, and, and then the, with the committee going on as well. So yeah, I think it just saddened me more than anything. Um, because now, I mean, just yesterday, I mean, there's still questions and not of the right or wrongness of what they did, but the whole surroundings of the event, um, with individuals, you know, yesterday, the, the Department of Justice, FBI, would not answer Senator Ted Cruz's direct question uh, about apartment, Department of Justice involvement. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just a lot still left to be out there. Um, it's just and frankly, it's just a sad time in our, our country because it is becoming more and more. And Pelosi and, and the Democrats using this as a partisan, you know, hammering post. Yeah, it seems and you mentioned earlier the the impeachment investigations that you know, you had to endure um, and fight back against these things. It seems as though it's it, we're caught in an impossible cycle where as long as Democrats have Congress, um, they are latching on to these particular issues and sort of doing what they accused Republicans of doing during Benghazi, right? Like yeah. they're doing something similar to that. Do you think there's any way out of this vicious cycle? Well, number one, there's no correlation between Benghazi and the and this new committee in the sense that that Nancy Pelosi actually got to pick members to serve on the Benghazi committee. Right. Um, you know, again, here, let me let me bring this back just a step. I just uh, ended it, uh, just this past uh, fall. I, I published a book called The Clock in the Calendar, and it, it came out of the time that I was serving as the uh, ranking member. And it's just a firsthand account of what I lived through, mainly in 2019. But it also led up to the fact of, of how we got there with the FBI, the Russia investigation, the fake Russia investigation. And remember, it all started. Here's something everybody forgets. All of this started with a Hillary Clinton cover up her own emails. Mm. Okay. This all started with Hillary Clinton and then Comey and, and the election cycle of 16. But what we found was is when the Democrats got power in 2019, they did something that's been sort of was unique. I, I personally believe um, in the 200 plus years of our country and especially the house of representatives, they were willing to put aside any rule, change any norm, any practical protocol to get their end result. I mean, they have made enshrined the end justifies the means in their uh, way they go about it. And I wrote about this and I'm still seeing the same thing with this January 6th committee, but I saw it with the impeachment process as well, where you had, you know, hearings in back in closed doors, no transparency, and then only bringing forth or leaking what they want to leak. Um, Democrats have shown a real penance to say, we'll 
we're willing to give up position and power, at least Nancy Pelosi has, to give up position and power to get a policy or to get an idea done. And I think that's what you're seeing more and more of now. But I think the American people are also catching on to it, which is why if most any objective observer says that November is just going to be a disaster for the Democrats in the House and probably in the Senate as well. Yeah, right. No, and I think they're increasingly aware of that. But what they can do to turn it around at this point (laughs) remains to be seen. Um, So your fellow Georgian, uh, John Ossoff, is, according to the media, circulating a bill looking for Republican co-sponsors that would essentially bar members of Congress from trading stocks while they're in office. This His bill would even bar um, family members of members from trading stocks while they're in Congress unless they have some sort of mutual <laughs> fund. And then Kevin McCarthy came out and said, well, we'll think about doing something like this if we retake the majority. Having served in Congress, what do you think about those proposals? Do you think they would actually make a difference in how members go about their business on committees and elsewhere? Well, again, I think the, the assumption here is that there's this mass rampant of uh, uh, use of insider information to buy and sell, you know, stocks by members of Congress. Um, I don't believe that to be true uh, in what I have seen. I mean, I, what was really interesting with me is I never owned an individual stock while I was in Congress, <laughs> mainly because I was raising a family, sending two boys to the University of Georgia. <laughs> you know, um, you know, look, we are one of the most transparent. Running for office is one of the most transparent. Uh, positions that you can have. People know how much you make. They know how much you're worth. They know, you know, where, you know, stocks you have to list out. Is it probably a good idea to tighten the restrictions further on, on members uh, freedom to move and sell stocks? Look, we had the issue right after the pandemic with, you know, then Senator uh, Leffler and, and Burr and others who, who made moves in the stock market, you know, again, eventually was you know dismissed. But again, perception is reality in politics. So, um, look, Ossoff, OK, if he wants to do it, fine. I, I look I see it more as a, at this point is, is, you know, playing politics with the issue. Uh, McCarthy. Again, Pelosi is one of the her family is one of the wealthier families in in Congress and does a lot of stock trades. So, again, what I want to separate out is this issue. Is it probably better to keep members of Congress from doing individual stock trades? Probably so. Uh, From a perspective of uh, of perception. Are we attacking a rampant problem? I would tend to say no. I think it's it's a far more political issue than settling a a real you know crisis issue. No, there's I mean Georgia politics right now. It almost feels like Georgia's at the center of center of the political world right now. I mean, there's so the what's swirling in Georgia seems to have so many uh, national implications, and obviously the president chose uh, Georgia for a number of reasons. But the uh, elections in Georgia, I mean, this is an incredibly fraught issue, and I'm sure you hear from people every single day who are immensely frustrated with the the process in Georgia and with everything that's played out in Georgia. So looking back, how hard do you think it is for regular people who aren't involved in policy, aren't involved in media, to know what's happening in our election processes, given the amount of disinformation that is swirling um, over, you know, votes, over vote counts, over all of that? Isn't it just impossible for, uh, almost impossible for average people to, to know what's happening right now? 
It can be, yes. And I think that, but, but, and here's the thing too. Everybody wants to say this is a, uh, you know, a little over a year ago phenomenon, which is, can you believe, you know, even just in us talking here, that it has been almost 15 months since the election of 2020? No, I can't. <laughs> it feels like, I mean, the way people talk about it, it was yesterday. Right. And it's been almost 15 months um, in that process. Here, here's the problem that you have. This is not a, an issue that have started 15 months ago. The, the press wants you to believe that. They want you to believe that it is only Republicans who's ever questioned election. It's only Donald Trump who is who has caused you know people to say you know should people have voted. I, you know I make this comment all the time. A lot of what was found in some irregularities and other things in different states, you know, have been going on for for decades. Mm. Okay. I mean, it's not that it's this not been happening. It's the first time that it was really questioned in a, in a large sense. And and so it does make you have some questions and concerns, but go back to 20, you know, to 2000 Bush v. Gore in Florida. Okay. Democrats couldn't believe that they lost Florida. Um, they questioned the election 2004. They questioned the election again. Some of the same very vociferous critics on the democratic side about um, the 2020 election were the very ones who questioned uh, the election in 2004. They questioned the election in 2016 and others. So there's equal blame to go around here. What I will tell most people is this. Go vote. Use your ability to vote to make sure that you show up. If you show up and vote uh, or use any process to give it, then you've done your part to make sure that your voice is heard. Um, what was despicable to me about the about the trip by the president and vice president to Georgia yesterday was the simple disregard for the truth. At a certain point in time, we can agree or disagree about policy. But when you blatantly lie and say things about Georgia's voter integrity law, SB 202 is what it's known as, then somebody ought to be calling it out. Where's the four Pinocchios today from the Washington Post again for, for Joe Biden mischaracterizing something as simple? It just shows me he's never read the bill. And if he has, he's just being ignorant about it because he talked about, you know, giving water or feeding somebody who's hungry or thirsty. Again, electioneering was the problem. You can't electioneer. You can't campaign, in essence, even by shirt or premise within 150 feet of the polling place. The law itself says that you can still have the poll workers provide water and coolers or whatever where they self-serve themselves. But to say that and then capture it with scripture was just abhorrent yesterday. And this is why most people are just very, very frustrated with what they see. Right. Yeah. No, that, that was a great point. If you could explain to people, I mean, this is this is really complicated stuff and it's stuff where the institutional trust has declined so precipitously. If you could explain to people what the very real problems are with election integrity, if you had to do like an elevator pitch um, and particularly in Georgia um, for, for why they should care about election integrity and why that it, why it why it is uh, a threat, why there are real threats to election integrity, what would you say? Well, I think the the threat is this: is making sure that everybody easy to it's easy to vote and hard to 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 cheat. I think that's a, the simplest answer you can give. And look, Georgia, a lot of states, including Georgia, 
uh, put in protocols that should have never been put in because of the pandemic under the guise of the pandemic. And in Georgia, under a lawsuit from Stacey Abrams, they did stuff like mail an absentee ballot application to everybody on the rolls. They suspended purging the rolls of those who have moved and are died. They, and these are the kind of things that were put into place. You know, they enlisted protocols for the drop boxes. And uh, I want to say that there's like 80% of the counties never followed through who use them, never followed through with the, the protocols that were designed to ensure that, you know, people were not, you know, ballot harvesting or, or depositing more than just their own ballots. So these are things that came up in this election that have been fixed in Georgia in many ways. Um, and so I think the biggest thing is, is, is just to understand that there's, you know, always a, an attempt or there's always been an attempt to, uh, by some who want to, you know, influence election to do so in nefarious ways. For the most part, that doesn't happen. 2020 was a, was a year in which you saw more of those anomalies than, than most. And so I think I just go back to this, that in the states who have been working on this, you're seeing a, a safer product, you know, that you're going to see, I think, in Georgia made even uh, more uh, safe in as far as the integrity. And, and I can't emphasize enough, Georgia is the epicenter, I think, of a lot of this. And Georgia is not like a lot of the other states. But I will say this no matter how you sort of cut it, uh, we lost the U.S. Senate because we didn't have our voters turn back out in Georgia on January 5th last year. And was that because, would you say there was institutional distrust that pushed people? Yes. Um, right. Well, and also you had some agitators who kept saying, don't go vote. Mm-hmm. Okay, who are you benefiting there? Right. You know, so I think that was the problem. How do you convince people their vote is going to it, when people have such a deep distrust in these institutions, particularly the voting institutions? How do you convince uh, Republicans that it's necessary to to go out and vote when they have so little faith in the system? Well, I mean, my the simplest answer for me is if you don't vote, you you don't have any right to say anything, and and to and to believe that your vote is not counted in, in looking at it. You know, I think you have to trust, you know, some of the implementation that's been put in to secure uh, absentee ballots, to secure day of voting. I think voter ID is is integral to that and, and other things. And some of it is just going to have to you know, come back to a time uh, in which the ballot box is respected because they they believe that the safeguards are in place for that. Is that going to be overnight? No. And, and like I said, for anybody that believes this is a two year process or less than two year process is really deceiving themselves. We've, we've had a, uh, in this country, the last 20 years have been very difficult, um, in that regard. And I can remember, um, you know, you know, here in Georgia, two years, you know, four years ago, three years ago. Now, I guess I'm trying to get my numbers right because this is your the last year of Brian Kemp's uh, first term. Uh, you know, Stacey Abrams basically never conceded the election. Mm. And she yeah. was never, you know, put on a skewer, you know, of, of being, you know, isolated or anything else because that, in fact, the, the left media applauded it. Right. Well, Hillary and so, too. again, it's both sides. And again, it's, it's high. You know, it, it goes back to just, you know, hopefully getting people back to an understanding that we've made it as secure as we possibly can. Now you got to go vote and having, you know, the conditions in place to make sure they're counted properly. 
Yeah, no, Hillary Clinton, you know, was famously oh, yeah. uh, convinced that uh, Russia had given Donald Trump the election in 2016. <laughs> no, it, it hadn't to do with anything the fact that she had no idea where Wisconsin was. Yeah, you know? right, right. No, she, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so as we wrap up here, I, there's a lot of stress and anxiety and depression and all of that in the country. Um, and indeed, we have uh, Congressman Ken Buck on the show tomorrow, who I think will address some of that uh, through the, the uh, avenue of big tech and, and legislation that can tackle big tech and make the industry more competitive and make the products better. Um, but what do you point to in in scripture? Um, and what would you point to in scripture for people who are so nervous and, and uncertain about the future of the country? Well, I think there's several things, you know, I think you can, uh, in bigger theological pictures, I just go to the first few words in the beginning, God, period, in the beginning, God. Not in the beginning of process, not in the beginning, you know, hey, three, you know, these uh, cosmic events came together. No, it says in the beginning, God. And I think for those of faith, we have to understand, we, we believe and we need to trust the fact that there is a God created all that we see, that that God is still in control. Um, I think if you want a, a, an updated version, you, you know, be, you, he, he commands us to be still and know that he is God. Mm. Um, but also a very practical is how sitting here thinking about this. We've got to get back also to a place in our life in which we are content. Uh, Paul writes about this and he says, I've been rich. I've been poor. Would I be rather be rich? Yes. Would I, but if I'm poor, I'm content in my life. I'm content where God has placed me. That doesn't mean that you quit. In fact, no one would ever accuse the apostle Paul of quitting. Uh, in fact, of not doing things. In fact, he was very active, but what he found was, was the contentment to get up and go along knowing that God is in control. I see too many believers, and you ask this from a very faith, you know, and in my perspective, a Christian context, in my opinion. Okay. And, and I'm going to say this. We act as if for Christians who always talk about heaven and eternal life, why do we act as if this is the only thing we have? Mm. Find peace in the very simple truths of Scripture. Mm. And is that easy? No. Um, but it is what we need in these times of turmoil, in these times of chaos. Because at the end of the day, nothing has surprised God. He's not woke up one morning and said, wow, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and he's there. And I think that's what I, that's the hope that I would give to people uh, during this time. What's next for you? What, do, what does the future look like for you? You have the podcast, you wrote a book. Um, what are your plans for the next couple of years? I want to stay in Backland, Bob, and doing like what I'm doing right now. And that is out there giving, uh, I, I think conservatives have a the best ideas. I think we have the best policy notions and we have the worst communications. Um, I have tried my best. I, I was, you know, coming from my background, all I have ever done in life is, is, you know, that God is above me to feed my family with is, is being a pastor. It's being a lawyer. It's being someone, a politician who shares words, thoughts, and feelings to actually convey uh, ideas and to elicit action. Conservatives have got to get away from this idea that we just spout numbers, we spout policies, and everybody will just swoon and fall over. We've got to get back to the point in which we say the reason you have less government is, and the reason you have lower taxes, the reason you have a, a strong financial system is because individuals are empowered to go out and do uh, what they are called to do. And at the end of the day, it's not about a business owner who makes an extra, you know, uh, percentage on their of profit is the fact that they can take that profit, add a new machine and add two or three people to a full-time employment. It's, we got to bring it back. Conservatives have too, for too long have allowed the left to use emotional 
uh, politics. And, that, and I don't think we need to go there, but I think we forgot about the person that's in the middle listening to us. And that's people. So for me, I'm going to do the podcast. I'm going to do media opportunities. I'm going to, you know, I may write more books. Uh, I'm going to be out speaking. I, I'm going to, you know, help in things like criminal justice reform, bringing conservative thought, because I want to raise up a generation of conservatives who are not willing to back down when the left says boo but actually go forward with good ideas. When Republicans and conservatives are able to stand in the marketplace and not be fearful of what the left thinks of them, that's what I want to be a part of, and that's what I'm going to be working on. Former Congressman Doug Collins of Georgia, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, Culture Editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. 